breaching the fault lines of today. Welcome to Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser on the Blaze Radio Network. This is Dr. Zudi Jasser. Welcome to another episode of Reform This. This is the place where the rubber meets the road in Islamic reform and counter-radicalization, where you can come to learn week to week, not just about generic reform, but how do we keep our country safer? How do we keep the world safer from radical Islamism? And while the world sleeps, while the world continues to be distracted by multiple derangement syndromes, political correctness, cancel culture, and other things, here... You and I, week to week, talk about a few of those issues that I think need to be lifted up, need to be part of the strategy that we face. You know, a quarter of the world's population is Muslim. And at some point, the Islamists are either going to take over many of these countries, which they already do control, or you could have secular fascists continue to control them, which is not a way to modernize and democratize and de-radicalize, or... They could become democracies. Now, you may see that as far-fetched, but here I think we're able to discuss that, and I try to do that with you. This week is no different. Your faithful American patriotic Muslim correspondent has a few issues to talk to you about. So first, I have to tell you I'm excited about going to Norfolk, Virginia, and I'll tell you about it next week, but my old ship, the USS El Paso, is having its reunion and reunions are where people that used to or ever did serve on a ship get together, just like you do at your high school, college, or graduate school reunions, and share stories, share pictures. We'll see. I'll see how it uh, goes and can't wait to tell you about it. I'm taking my family. You know, all of my kids were born after I finished my service in the Navy, so it'll be a good experience for them to see Norfolk, one of the largest, if not the largest, naval base in the world. And... You know, I think it is inspirational to see all the men and women that serve be able to tour some of the ships out there, and I'm sure I'll have a lot of stories to share with you. And then uh, we're going to do a little sightseeing and see Washington, so I'll let you know how it is, and uh, I'll catch you on the flip side of that. Last week was the UN General Assembly meeting. Happens every year in September. And this year's was eclipsed by wasted time on media about impeachment and other things. But thankfully to our Secretary of State and others, real issues were addressed. We saw footage of our faithful friend uh, Tariq Fatah, who was one of the founders uh, or the founder of the Muslim Canadian Congress, a reformer. Now, I don't think he likes that term, but... Uh, I'll call you that, Tarek. A reformer who has confronted Islamists in India, confronted Islamists in Canada, Europe, and in New York. And you'll see footage on his uh, timeline in which he shows you how he was attacked near the UNGA, UN General Assembly uh, gathering on the streets of New York near the UN building last week, in which Pakistani gangs were screaming, Allahu Akbar, and they roamed the streets trying to intimidate and bully and beat up those of Baluk or Sindhi. Uh, 
ancestry who were standing up for the rights of those against the Islamic Republic of Pakistan. And now with the topic of Kashmir, we didn't hear that much about Kashmir at the UN General Assembly, which I would have expected. But again, this runs core, ladies and gentlemen, when you're trying to understand what the issues are that we are up against. Some of those issues involve, I think every one of them involves, our citizens' identification with their nation-state. And that identification with their nation-state is related to identification with the legal system, with the ethnicity, with the culture, and with the military of their country. All of those things are brought together. Yes, they're influenced by ethnicity, they're influenced by race, they're influenced by many things, but ideologically, they are going to be driven by the underlying, undergirding philosophy for that country. Is that philosophy secular democracy, which I believe is one of the polars, the polar uh, um, struggles, and on the other side, secular liberal democracy being good on the other side which I think is the evil is theocracy now this is in the Islamic identity you may see a third polarity which is also evil which is the secular military identities of fascist national identities we've talked about that before I don't want to uh I don't want to belabor that point, but when you talk about Kashmir, it's always been sort of that brewing problem. And I think now that the Israeli-Palestinian issue has sort of burnt out for the Islamists, they've been unable to really succeed in deceiving the West into believing it's a religious issue, despite their deep anti-Semitism for the Palestinian movements of Hamas and the Islamic Brotherhood and the Muslim Brotherhood. But as that issue burns out for them, as their perennial victimization, and you saw Zahra Balu of CARE San Francisco going in down in flames, being uh, rejected from the Women's March this week, or last week it was. And as she's rejected from the Women's March, she just put out some tweets that were just horrifically even more extreme than the ones she was dismissed for, repeatedly calling Israel a terrorist state and on and on. But anyways, she's one of the holdouts on this issue. So now Kashmir is starting to raise in its popularity of being the new issue, and the Indian government is not helping too much in that they are also uh, committing some acts that need to be looked at as they have for some time. But the issue remains how should we look at that issue? Is Kashmir an entity that should be given identification status as a nation state? And I would tell you that would be as ill-advised as it was to create the nation state of Pakistan. Pakistan is an Islamic Republic and as a result despite its secular military, has been a Sharia state, a Sharia state that endorses blasphemy laws, that endorses apostasy laws, that has committed crimes against humanity. You know better symbolized than what we saw happen to Malala as she went and tried to get an education at the age of 14, 15, was shot. 
and nearly killed and has become a beacon, a beacon of heroism for women's rights and for anti-Islamist misogyny that against the Islamist misogyny that she has worked. But these things in Pakistan don't come out of a thin air. They don't come out of a vacuum. They're, they're, they're coming out of a state born as an Islamic Republic in 1947 or 48. And that birth gave rise to a Sharia state. Now it shifted towards a military secular state, but it still has an instrument, a legal instrument of Islamic Sharia state. Kashmir similarly is asking for that identification to separate itself from India. I won't get into all the weeds for those that are experts on the Kashmiri issue, but I would tell you that that issue, for all its faults, India is a secular democracy. It's a successful democracy of almost a billion people. And its failure would only be seen if it ever became some type of either nationalist fascist state, which would not be a democracy, or it allowed further development of Muslim theocracies. So I think as the UNGA met, there was not enough conversation this week about that. There was not enough conversation about why the fate of Kashmir is not just about independence of a group of people that don't happen to like Indian nationalism. It has to do with the implications of another Islamic state and how much Pakistan has radicalized not only its own population but the world's Muslim population. Just as you have the Muslim Brotherhood of the Arab Islamist Movement, you have the Diobandi Movement of Sheikh Mawlana Maududi. Maududi is the Hassan al-Banna of the Islamist movement of uh, Pakistan. The Jamaat Islamiyya is the Islamic party of Pakistan, which radicalizes its population, is one of the strongest parties in Pakistan. And while it's definitely, I believe, a terrorist group, it is a political party, just like the Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt. And if you think India should allow... Kashmir to form its own state and thus its own Islamic parties within, uh, then you're looking at further radicalizing the global Muslim population. But the response to that is they have a conversation, to have a conversation about what is the evolution of that. And you see our friend Tariq Fatah was attacked on the streets just because he happens to be a Muslim that rejects Kashmiri independence that way. A Muslim that recognizes Balok independence. All of these issues may not resonate with you other than to the fact that in every country, be it Afghanistan's failures, Iraq's failures, Iran's threat, Hamas's threat to the West, to secularism, to freedom and liberty, every one of them, the common theme is the struggle for identity for citizens between their national identity being about a unified, diverse ethnically diverse, culturally diverse population under a single constitution versus a more homogenous religious identity based in theocracy. Next, I have to tell you, I was reading a small story out of Utah. 
And I think it epitomizes some of the problems in reporting, in Western reflections, in discussion, and the standards to which we hold American Muslims here in the West. We're living in the lap of freedom. We can do and say whatever we want, either against or for our, our faith practices, whatever it might be. And yet, the media reporting is horrible. So here we have a story from Peggy Fletcher Stack at the Star at the Salt Lake Tribune in Salt Lake City, Utah. And the title of the story, Utah's largest mosque is taking shape, complete with, quote, female-friendly, unquote, features. Largest mosque in Utah taking shape, complete with female-friendly features. Female-friendly. Isn't that patron? What, what does that even mean? So then you read the article. A new mosque with a surprisingly original look. And feel is rising in West Jordan. Its domes will be pyramid-like triangles rather than spheres most common to mosques. The women's section will be nearly equal in size and on the same floor as the men's, separated only by a glass door. It will be the new home of the Utah Islamic Center, which has been meeting in a rented sandy warehouse tucked behind a strip mall since 2007. 350 members of the congregation has dramatically outgrown those quarters. The woman she spoke to from Pakistan has never seen any female area like the new one, Javid says. It is a two-dome mosque which is unheard of. Most only have one for the men. The women get their own dome. Wow, what progress. The end of Islamist misogyny. They have their own dome. The mosque is female friendly, said Imam Shuhayb Deen. It is designed so sisters can use the main entrance and do not have to use a side entrance. Plus, there will be a women's lounge. The soft-spoken Imam, Imam and similarly proud of the design innovations. We wanted the exterior to blend in with the local architecture. This is an American mosque, not a Middle Eastern mosque or a South Asian mosque. It goes on. What what are the expectations here? I mean, seriously? This reporter didn't even seem to... This religion reporter has been on that beat for a while. Found out when I tweeted her name, she follows me on Twitter. When you're doing a story like that, why not ask Muslims around the country, do you feel this is reform? Do you feel this is female-friendly? They look at females in these mosques like they're in a zoo. Now they're behind a glass door, and that's that's female-friendly because they're no longer upstairs. Remember, remember I talked to you a couple years ago about Justin Trudeau? Justin Blackface Trudeau? He wasn't known as that a few years ago. But the good, politically correct prime minister went to a mosque in Canada and talked to the sisters behind a curtain and said, to the sisters upstairs, I'm glad to be here with you. And they weren't even, he couldn't even see their faces. He's sitting down in the lobby on the first floor with the men. The prime minister of this country, of the country of democracy north of us, is talking to the women behind a curtain. And he said to the sisters upstairs. Talk about compromising your own principles while he walks around with socks with 
multicolored defense of the LGBTQ community and the Islamic crescent on it, talking about equality and diversity. Meanwhile, he treats, talks to Muslim women like he's talking to animals in a zoo. And then this report talks about female-friendly mosques that are no longer curtains, but behind glass doors. And I'm sorry, we're not getting any younger, ladies and gentlemen. We don't have, you know, this is the problem when we talk about Muslims, is that there's there's such a bigotry of low expectations that somehow these are considered as strides forward. Why? Because this is how these Muslim leaders pitched it to their communities. And they said, oh, we have to modernize. So so let's, just like the Saudis, they allowed women to drive and now they can work. So somehow all of a sudden MBS becomes a reformer. MBS is a reformer because now women can drive. It's progress, I guess. But seriously, this is to the standards of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights? Seriously? This is even near being third class? let alone equality. They can now travel on their own. Okay, that's progress. But these are rule changes. As I said, there's no theological underpinning in which imams have talked about why women should be on the boards of mosques, should be allowed to be praying on the same floor without any curtains. And I've said, okay, if you don't want men and women shoulder to shoulder praying because of a sense of modesty, why not have them equal, left and right? One on the left side, the other on the right side, but equal in the same rows. That would be a step forward and then have them equal on leadership, equal from giving talks and speaking to the community. Have a board, if you have a board of nine people, Ten people have five and five, men and women. That would be progress. Not mandating a a head covering always on visiting the mosque. So this is the bigotry of low expectations. If you expect, if you wonder why there's no more moderate Muslims, why should they moderate? Why should the American Muslim community moderate when in Utah... The newspaper talking about the largest mosque being built can't even do legitimate investigation into what equality means and what the theology means as they're dumping. The, the article goes on to talk about the fact that they need $3 million and they only have $1.6 million and they were able to come up with the money, but they need more money. So actually, they're doing fundraising for this mosque through that article. And I understand the the Utah community and the and the newspaper wanting to be welcoming to diverse communities and cultures and faiths. But if you really believe in religious freedom, what about the religious freedom of the Muslims? Muslim women at the mosque. Or the religious freedom of Muslim women who may not go to that mosque because they don't want to be behind a separate glass door. So do the do the Salafi, which remember Salaf is friends of the Prophet. Salaf is Orthodox fundamentalist, hardliner, if you will. So the Salaf that run these mosques are now becoming the de facto representatives of Muslims at the mosque and nationally and in states like as they were at the Salt Lake Tribune. 
Is that fair? Is that a fair representation of our community? I don't think so. And I think it's insulting. Just as it's insulting, MBS might be modernizing some rules. I'm not even going to get into the issue of diplomacy and his alliance with the West. That's fine. I get it. There are bigger threats to deal with. But at the end of the day, as I said in Twitter, what does family, what does female friendly mean? I doubt this is a major shift in gender apartheid that's seen in Salafi mosques across the United States. But I guess who cares since the Utah newspaper really thinks and basically tells its readers that it's the headline that reforms Islam against misogyny, not Muslims. It doesn't matter what they do in it. The reporting is really all in the headline or in the first line where she describes female friendly. The reporter will probably say, well, I didn't write the headline. Well, the whole article basically doesn't pass any critique about what they mean by female friendly. And if they're saying the other mosques are not female friendly, which I think walks them into walks them into exactly the trap they're trying to lay out. Do they really insult our intelligence? Because if they're saying the other mosques are not female friendly, I would posit that this one has not shifted much at all. There's still no women in their leadership, no women interviewed. They said the Pakistani woman while they interviewed the imam and the leaders. So please, I beg of you, show tough love to the Muslim community. You, lo- you, you want to do a report, ask about your local Muslims down the streets in your cities, whether it's in Florida, Michigan, and Illinois, Minnesota, as we were in a few weeks ago, then demand of them the same, the same standards that you would of synagogues, of churches, of temples, Hindu, Sikh, whatever it might be, and ask them and say, how many women are in your leadership? Has that changed? What does your imam think theologically of the ability of a woman to divorce her husband, of inheritance property. Should she get a quarter of that, or is it equal to her brother's? All these kind of things are important if you really want to... This is America. This is the United States. This is not Iranian press TV out of Tehran. And yet... the the newspapers seem to treat them that way. It's just unbelievable. I want to end with a shout out to Secretary Pompeo, who during the UNGA this week spoke out about religious freedom. And I have to say, between his ministerials that he's been doing religious freedom and else, yes, I've been critical of some of the folks that he continues to bring or the establishment of the State Department continues to bring back into the fold, even including the Islamists of some of the Muslim Brotherhood front groups or legacy groups. And leaders like Hamza Yusuf and others that I don't believe are reformers, I don't believe are conservatives. But even having said that, Secretary Pompeo has been doing a great job. He talked about why we must protect religious freedom. He said more than 80% of mankind lives in places where religious freedom is threatened or entirely denied. And he's retaking American and Western leadership when it comes to promoting, protecting, and defending the rights of every individual everywhere to religious freedom and, and liberty. And I saw him, I was proud to, to, to see him 
articulate defense of the Chinese Uyghur population, the East Turkmenistan independence, and the province that sometimes referred to as Jingjiang. Bottom line is, is the concentration. Those are concentration camps, not at the border of the U.S. Those are concentration camps where they systematically have millions of Muslims being forced into conversion, forced to eat pork, forced to deny their Quranic teachings, things that should be crimes against humanity, even religious Muslim leaders from dictatorships like Saudi Arabia and Pakistan are congratulating the Chinese on how they're doing this. Why? Because of economic subservience to the Chinese government. So, hats off to Secretary Pompeo for all the nonsense coming out this week about Ukraine and who was on what phone call and what. The bottom line is is that they've been silently on a daily basis defending religious freedom, talking about in Iraq what's happening with some of the demonstrations against the Iranian takeover of Baghdad and elsewhere, where this is happening, ladies and gentlemen, and you're missing it. We're losing Iran more and more, and this State Department secretary is doing everything he can to prevent it. Follow Morgan Ortegas on Twitter. There's so much to talk about. Stay strong. God bless you all, and I'll be back with you next week on Reform This. Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser on the Blaze Radio Network.